from Washington, D.C. and around the world. This is Government Matters Defense with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm Mimi Gerges. The Navy has new guidance for sailors who refuse to get the COVID-19 vaccine. Active duty personnel are required to get vaccinated by November 28th and reserves by December 28th. The deadline does not apply to service members with either an exemption or a pending exemption. USNI News reports that so far, the Navy has approved six medical exemptions. The Army is looking to better prepare itself against supply chain vulnerabilities. FCW reports that the military service plans to modernize its enterprise resource planning systems and use native data analytics as part of its modernization efforts. The goal is to avoid disruptions to the supply chain and help support lines of communication. The Coast Guard is assessing its climate change vulnerabilities and looking to invest more to confront that challenge. Federal News Network reports that $2 billion has gone to the Coast Guard for infrastructure appropriations since 2018. But a new report from the Government Accountability Office says that that might not be enough funding because the service has a project backlog totaling more than $2.6 billion. Coast Guard leaders say they are working through that backlog to improve resiliency. U.S. Naval Forces are participating in joint exercises with Israel, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain. These maritime exercises in the Red Sea aim to counter Iran and its influence in the region. Bradley Bowman is a senior director for the Center on Military and Political Power at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Brad, nice to see you again. Nice to see you again. Thank you. So why are these exercises happening? What prompted this? You know, the short answer is the Islamic Republic of Iran, its efforts to sow regional instability, export terrorism, and inch uh, slowly toward a nuclear weapons capability has pushed Americans and Israelis and Gulf Arab governments closer together. You know, there's been a long uh, kind of quiet, below the radar realization in some Arab capitals that the Islamic Republic of Iran and not Israel was the threat to regional security. But of course, in 2020, we saw the Abraham Accords where we saw UAE, Bahrain and Israel normalized relations and that private realization became a public acknowledgement. That public acknowledgement led to all kinds of cooperation in a variety of economic, finance, agricultural tools and tourism sectors, but also in security cooperation. And this exercise that we, we saw in the Red Sea in the last week is, is the security manifestation of that increasing aligned view among these three governments about the threat from the Islamic Republic of Iran. So then what does the Pentagon get out of this? You know, what's the importance of the Red Sea region to the Defense Department? So, you know, Central Command, right, the, uh, the, the, the combatant command responsible for the wider Middle East views Iran as its number one threat. And I would say that Iran is the, the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism. Uh, and, uh, and, and so anything we can do to build a more capable and unified coalition to deter aggression from Iran and push back on what they're doing, uh, the better for Americans. And what are they doing? Well, generally speaking, they're not conducting conventional warfare and aggression against other states, although they did launch ballistic missiles at two bases in Iraq and gave more than 100 Americans you know, traumatic brain injury. And they did you know, attack, uh, attack the uh, oil facility in Saudi Arabia. But generally speaking, since 1979, the Islamic Republic of Iran, as many of your viewers will know, have used asymmetric means, using developing proxies like Hezbollah in Lebanon, uh, like uh, militias in Iraq, like the Houthis in Yemen, and they've used those proxies 
to advance their, their security objectives while escaping the consequences. And how do they do that? They do that by smuggling weapons. And they smuggle weapons uh, 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 often, uh, at least in some part of the journey through the maritime domain. And that's why this Red Sea exercise is so significant because it focused on interdicting uh, shipments like that. Okay, you mentioned interdicting because this, these exercises are focused on what's called visit, board, and seizure tactics. What yeah. is that about? And you know, I wonder if you're, you're starting to get on Iranian ships, isn't that gonna you know, blow things up a bit? Well, you know, the U.S. military and others already have done that. I mean, there have been examples in the last few years where, um, you know, according to international law and normal protocols at sea, uh, there is some ability to do this. So we've seen that happen before. And when we've done that, what have we found? We found lots and lots of weapons uh, being shipped from Iran uh, to the Houthis in Yemen. Uh, uh, and so, you know, this is not me guessing. This is not me saying this is something we should do in the future. We're already doing it. I would argue we're not doing it enough, right? Yemen is home to arguably the world's worst humanitarian crisis, which is being driven primarily by the war. We're putting a lot of pressure on the Saudis. Some of that is deserved, but we're largely ignoring the shipments of Iranian weapons to the Houthis. And why would the Houthis negotiate right, but and Brad continue to have reliable access to weapons? But Brad, Iran's not going to like uh, Israelis or Americans boarding their ships and seizing their weapons. I mean, isn't that going to escalate things? Well, we've done it in the past. I mean, don't take my word for it. The UN, the UN a panel of experts have talked about Iranian. So this isn't like some hawkish American talking. This is the UN, right? Not known for exactly being hawkish, has acknowledged that the habitual systematic effort of the Islamic Republic of Iran to ship weapons to the Houthis. And of course, they're not going to like it. Right. Anytime uh, someone is doing something bad and they get caught in the act, they're not going to like it. Um, but, you know, I, I'm sure the Saudis don't appreciate missiles being launched at their cities. And I'm sure the crew of the uh, USS Mason that had two cruise missiles launched at them in the Red Sea in 2016 didn't appreciate that either. So, Brad, so I'm more this... concerned about regional security than how the Iranians might feel about it. Well, this isn't the first time that Arabs and Israelis are doing joint military exercises, as you mentioned before. But it's the first time that it's really out in the open. What does that mean? Right, yeah, no, so it really is the first overt uh, uh, military exercise between Arab Israelis. I mean, this really is a landmark big deal in my view. I mean, you have the Greek-hosted host exercise, which is an air exercise where the Israelis and Emiratis both sent aircraft and crews, but it was kind of below the scene. Sometimes they put the, the, the respective flags on there, sometimes they weren't, but this was an overt exercise with Israelis, Americans, Emiratis, and Bahrainis working together overtly in the Red Sea. That's a first, and that's a big deal. And it helps improve the readiness of the, each of the navies, helps them operate more effectively together. And as we've been discussing, it sends a very positive, in my view, a deterrent message of the Islamic Republic of Iran. So finally, Brad, you know, the Pentagon moved Israel this year from the U.S. European Command to U.S. Central Command. What's the significance of that? Right. So the, uh, the, the Pentagon, as, as many of your viewers will know, divides the world into combatant commands. Uh, and in, uh, in the past, uh, Israel was uh, was fell, fell into the jurisdiction of European command. And that was primarily for years a function of the fact that Israel was kind of estranged from most of its Arab neighbors. And, and following these dynamics I've been described and following the 2020 Abraham Accords, if you look at the Pentagon release, they said the region has changed. Israel's relationship with its Arab neighbors, Arab neighbors have changed. So we're going to shift uh, Israel, which is in the Middle East and will remain in the Middle East for for, for the foreseeable future, we'll, uh, we'll now fall underneath Central Command. So what does that mean? It means more exercises like this, which I think are good for regional security and good for American national security interests. All right. Well, Brad, thanks so much. I appreciate you being on the program. Thank you. 
Coming next, science and tech jobs opening at the Pentagon, straight ahead on Government Matters, how to ramp up recruitment, development, and retention. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The director of the Defense Innovation Unit says the Pentagon's efforts to recruit science and tech talent are currently insufficient. The DOD needs to do a better job of recruiting, developing and retaining talent to create a more blended workforce. Lauren DeYoung-Shulman is Vice President for Research and Evaluation at the Partnership for Public Service. She's former Chief of Staff to the Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs. Lauren, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. So the director of the Defense Innovation Unit said that one problem is that key technology positions are staffed with military officers who might not be as knowledgeable about the topic as civilian experts. What do you think about that? I think that that's a great point. There's a lot of challenges in the defense workforce around scientific technology matters. Starting with, we don't just need engineers. We need people who can design policy. We need program managers. We need people who can buy technology, people who can deliver for the American people. And then on top of that, we need folks who have basic research and development skills and anything from basic information technology to AI, 3D printing, quantum, cybersecurity. It's a whole gamut of skill sets. And the military quite often tries to fill such roles with your basic multi-tool, a military officer who is capable of doing a lot, but may not be capable in all those really specific, highly technical roles that are necessary for national security. So what's a blended workforce? I think a blended workforce is going to require those military officers that Mike Brown was talking about, who bring a lot of specific skill sets to this challenge. But on top of that, we need the career civilian workforce to be upskilled and trained in anything from the policy roles to the procurement to the R&D skills that I mentioned before. I think it's also important to bring in some of the temporary talent that we see in the Defense Digital Service, Presidential Innovation Fellows, AAAS Fellows, and many others who are coming to government for a short period of time on tour of duty assignments, as they're called, to lend their really specific expertise to national security challenges. And that means we need to have offices and teams who are ready to take advantage of that talent and not just let them sit for many months waiting to, for example, get their computer or their printer set up. So I wanted to ask you about those rotations, because that was used by the Air Force as a possible solution, where industry experts could come for a limited time, work on some technical problems, and then go back to their private sector jobs. Do you like that solution? Do you think that's a good one? I think that has to play a role in our overall technology workforce. And the goal of these sorts of organizations is to bring in tech experts in the government to make a really positive outsized impact that you couldn't find in the current civilian workforce or the military workforce. And Congress has given Department of Defense a range of hiring authorities to actually make this happen. Here's the challenge. They have a goal of zero retention. Most of these roles that are temporary fellows or exchanges do not have an opportunity to bring those experts on staff for a longer period of time. That so, means a lot of their that means that a lot of what they're bringing to the table is not sustainable. It's just a temporary thing and it's not made permanent into the defense infrastructure. So they have to leave. They're not allowed to stay even if they like they'd like to. So if they applied to a permanent role into the federal government, they absolutely could. But we don't make it easy for them. 
I think we could we could make it a lot easier for them. And also the intent of the program is that temporary rotational status. We have to have a blended workforce that's purposeful and not one because we're band-aiding and slapping together all of these different short-term solutions without thinking through the longer-term needs of the federal workforce. So you say that there really should be better training and education for civil servants within the Defense Department and that the military side is really pretty good. I think it's actually an all of the above challenge. Uh, on the military side, we need to make sure that we're asking military officers to do roles in the science and technology space that makes sense for them. They can set the requirements. They can talk about how they want to use things in the field. And they can obviously fulfill a lot of policy procurement roles and strategy roles as well. On the civilian side, we don't have nearly as an intensive a program for training and development and using skills on the civilian side from artificial intelligence to cybersecurity and so on. Being purposeful about these investments and making sure that those civilians are placed in roles that make sense for them over the long term that actually activate those investments is a critical factor in our national security and something we absolutely have to do if we want to compete with China. You know, Lauren, you say being purposeful, but I wonder if you think that there's a sufficient sense of urgency within DOD to really get the workforce up to the skills needed to face China. We have heard about the challenges in the technology workforce at the Department of Defense for at least a decade. Multiple secretaries events have talked about this. But what we haven't done is seen their urgency trickle down to the, this, the military departments, to the Office of the Secretary of Defense, and to the people who need to be activated. Here's a key factor in this, work, in this challenge, HR. Human resources, we need to have HR forces, sorry, HR workers who are trained in how to hire for the kinds of skills that we need. That is a major gap that we have. DOD has all the authorities it needs to be able to hire this talent it requires. It's not actually using them because we haven't activated an active recruitment process, an HR process that is using all the many hiring authorities that it has and thinking through how to retain that talent once they're there and making sure they have those on ramps, as I talked about, and the ability to um, have external rotations, get the training they need and so on. And Lauren, just in the 15 seconds we've got left, any last yeah. solutions or recommendations that you have to fill those tech talent gaps within the DOD workforce? Leaders in the Department of Defense need to tell the stories of why S&T is so important to the national security mission and how they're actually taking advantage of those skills today. If they tell those stories, if they build that brand, they'll have far more folks who are interested in serving this mission and have a longer term, more sustainable workforce in this space. All right. Well, Lauren, thanks so much for being on the program. Nice to talk to you. Great to see you. Thank you. Coming next, China and the U.S. economies are becoming more and more interdependent with potential for that relationship to be weaponized. Still ahead on Government Matters, how to lessen the U.S.'s economic dependence on China. We'll be right back. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce says that the American and Chinese economies are so deeply interconnected that they could be weaponized against each other in a market of 1.4 billion people. But there is still time to take back the U.S.'s control over its economy while simultaneously working with China. Zach Cooper is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Zach, nice to see you. Great to see you, too. There was just a virtual summit between Presidents Biden and Xi has the U.S. relationship with China improved? 
Well, it's probably less bad than it was three or four months ago when the two sides were exchanging very pointed comments in public. Um, but I think the reality is that we haven't really solved any of the structural issues within the relationship. So we've now had a somewhat more positive meeting between Biden and Xi on Monday night. But the reality is that the core problems in the relationship aren't going away anytime soon. So the temperature may have been turned down a bit, but I think in the long term, those tensions remain. So I want to ask you about the supply chain issues. What's the root of that problem and what is China's role in that? As you know, so many of our supply chains go back not just to China, but all over the world and are deeply interconnected. And I think pre-pandemic, many of us just were used to those supply chains operating without too many problems. I think we've seen a number of cases, right, whether it's ships getting stuck in canals or pandemic-related issues or now ports not having uh, enough offload capacity, um, where actually the global supply chain is really struggling. And it's affecting American people day to day, whether it means you can't get uh, kitchen appliances, it's hard to get furniture, um, and even microchips for cars, which means that it can be difficult to buy a new car right now. Um, all of those issues are related to the global supply chains and, and whether those supply chains are functioning effectively. And at the moment, um, in many ways they are, but when you see the marginal problems, uh, I think the American people are really feeling that uh, in their pocketbook and, and also with the difficulty of getting specific products. You know, most people would say that the U.S. should lessen its dependence on Chinese goods with what's called selective decoupling. What's wrong with that? Well, there's nothing wrong with selective decoupling, in my view. I, I think it's totally fine to go ahead with some degree of selective decoupling in which we uh, try and look at the supply chains that matter most to us and make sure that we have trusted partners who are getting those goods and products from. Um, but at the end of the day, we also have to think about where we want to be coupled with China. In other words, are there ways that the United States can use China's own reliance on the U.S. economy to give the United States leverage? And I'll give you just one quick example, which is that many of the cell phone makers in China have long used Google's Android operating system. That means the U.S. has a tremendous amount of leverage over a fair number of Chinese tech companies. And that's the kind of thing that actually can be good from an American policymaking standpoint so that we have leverage just in the same way that the Chinese do over us. Okay, so you're, you're recommending a deeper recoupling in certain areas. Give us a little bit more information on that. What areas and how do we go about doing that? That's right. So right now, the United States has spent much of the last few years trying to figure out where China is dependent on the United States and actually cut off some of those ties. Right. So this has been penalizing Beijing for some of the bad actions that the Chinese government has been taking and some of the concerns the U.S. has about unfair trading practices and other economic practices. The reality is, though, in the short term, that makes a lot of sense. In the long term, it decreases our leverage. And so we have to make sure that in the long term, we still have accumulated leverage that we can use to try and force China to change its behavior. And that means perhaps in some areas, even deeper coupling between the U.S. economy and the Chinese economy. And so when I think about that, I think about in particular areas like some microchips. 
obviously not the ones that would go into Chinese military applications, but perhaps ones that go into more commercial applications that are necessary for the Chinese economy, where we actually could maintain China's dependence on us and therefore maintain our leverage in the future. And how do you go about implementing these, uh, this more strategic recoupling? I mean, does this happen at the Treasury Department? That's right. It would require the Treasury Department, the Commerce Department, the U.S. Trade Representative, the White House, all working together. And not just that, we'd have to work with our key foreign partners, too, because at the end of the day, if the U.S. tries to decouple from China, um, then China can just look to other sources. And so we actually have to make sure that we have a united plan with our key allies and partners. And so this is a very tough effort. And I'll just note one more thing, which is, uh, there might not be a lot of political support for this unless it's done very carefully because it would be very easy for this kind of recoupling effort to look like the Biden team was sort of giving in to China and just being willing to trade more. So it would have to be a real effort by the administration to work with the Congress as well. All right. Well, Zach, thanks so much for being on the program. Nice to talk to you. Thanks for having me. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And listen to our Government Matters podcast, available on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. You can also find every episode on our website. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges.